0: Well, good morning, everyone. I trust you're doing well, being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, it is uh, really good to be back. I was a bit nervous this morning, my wife as well. It seemed like the uh, first day of school after a summer break for us, and uh, it's good to see some of you have grown a lot in the past few weeks. I haven't seen you in different ways. I won't tell you how in public, but um, it's good to be back, and uh we are just thrilled to uh, uh, report to you, just God has granted us um, a great time of fellowship with three other pastors in Absarokee, um, Montana. That's about two hours' drive north of Yellowstone at the border of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. And um, just share a brief update of our time together. Uh, it was birthed from my fellowship with Pastor John Coe. Uh, I've known him for over 15 years godly man, Christian, husband, father, and a pastor. Meeting uh, on a monthly basis, and our fellowship has been so sweet. Centered around the gospel, we've been encouraging each other and feeding upon the truths of Christ. And we realized uh, pastors, and particularly senior pastors, are possibly are the most neglected group of people in the whole church. They are the most burdened. They have the most pressure, they have the most demands upon them, responsibilities, and yet they're often the most neglected. And they're the ones that are the most um, experiencing loneliness in life and ministry because of their unique role in the church. So when John and I got together, it was a special fellowship because we both played this particular role in our respective churches. So we thought about a year ago, it'd be great to get together with other senior pastors and also their wives, and minister to them because they're really partners in the ministry as well. And then the kids as well, and to really host this time um, fellowshipping with one another, allowing the wives to fellowship and minister, and really giving the kids a great time of, of fun as well. So we uh, planned this uh, well about a year ago, and we just had that retreat um, about 10 days ago. And it was uh, Pastor John Smith, uh, most of you know who he is, uh, uh, Peter Smith's older brother, and he's the calm one in the family. Um, <laughs> and uh, from Christ Our Hope Bible Church in Spokane, Washington, Pastor Todd Dykstra, he previously ministered uh, as the college pastor of Grayson Campus at UCLA. He's pastoring now at uh, Maranatha Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then Coe is from South County, uh, Ladera Ranch, and from so all of us. Uh, converged in the central location of Montana. I think Todd drove the longest. He drove like 33 hours. Uh, we drove 24, 25 hours. And uh, the Smiths had the easiest time. driving just nine hours there. And the morning time, the husbands and wives broke up, and we um, dialogued around questions about this ministry, about family about God's Word, and about what God is teaching us uh, personally. And then afternoon time, we had activities, and we had fun time together. You know, when, when you with the Greeks, you do as the Greeks do. So when you're in Montana, you do what people in Southern California do not do. You take God's guns and you shoot them, and it's completely legal. And you don't have to go anywhere to shoot guns. You just go to your backyard and shoot guns. And you don't have to be afraid of anyone shooting back at you. Um, So we we went fishing and hiking and saw wild horses and deer and saw these little things on the ground called bugs. And uh, that was shocked Ethan to no end. We did that in the afternoon, and then on the evenings we had family time with the kids, and then uh, we put the kids down, and then we got together and each family shared. Uh, just how things are going, share their lives, or how ministry is going, and uh, what challenges, what burdens, what threats they're encountering, and and prayers. And we pray for each family. And it was amazing to see just um, God's grace through joys and trials of life and ministry in each family. And it was a a wonderful time. It was um, a challenging uh, time that that we, we are confident that it will bear much fruit in our lives and our families, and ultimately in our churches in weeks, months, years, and decades to come. So uh, I just want to share with you where I was the past two weeks. I wasn't goofing around, you know, watching, uh, I don't watch baseball, so watching whatever's on TV. Um, We were away with the pastors. So greetings to you. They wanted me to send greetings to you from them. So Pastor Smith, Dykstra, and co. all send their greetings on behalf of them, their families. Uh, and their churches. On uh, the last day before we were to leave, we surprised our wives by giving them the afternoon off because we had eight adults and 17 kids in one house. One so uh, it was uh, like an, okay, not an asylum, but, you know, very close. It was um, a wild place to be. So we treated our wives to a uh, lunch away, and we'll take care of the kids. So we'll make lunch, feed the kids, and take them swimming at a flowing river nearby. And the wives can come by 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And what was very helpful was that the place where we are staying had a little life vests for all the kids. So at the worst, the kids would just float down the river. <laughs> and we eventually find them sooner or later. They get stuck in a rock and, oh, there's my kid. So they, they will not drive. It's okay. We can handle 17 kids. They have life vests. So otherwise, made sure the life vests were in place. They went off to lunch. And so we go to this place, this flowing river, uh, glacier water, right? And, uh, And we're sitting there having lunch. And I'm enjoying this nice, peaceful afternoon. And then the boys start doing something really strange. I think it's a cultural thing for the Pacific Northwest or the Midwest. They start climbing the rock face that's against the river and start jumping down this rock face at higher and higher heights. They're testing the depths of the water by jumping into it. And so they go 5 feet, 8 feet, 10, 15, 20, 25, maybe even higher, 30 feet. They're climbing this rock face and jumping in. And You know, for me, I'm having a wonderful time sitting there with my Diet Coke, watching this river flow. It's just kind of tranquil spiritual moment of communion with Christ. And they're ruining it by doing this because one by one, all the boys, older boys are doing it. And then Todd swims over and he does it. And I know what's coming, right? And John Smith goes and he does a cannonball run off the cliff into the water. And John co starts swimming. So they're godly men. They're not pressuring me, right? (laughs) They're not judging me. But just in case, <laughs> yeah, I started swimming over there and, uh, you know, what am I doing here? You know, this is not my idea of fun. You know, my idea of fun is like Korean barbecue or, you know, a nice hot coffee at, you know, Starbucks or, you know, playing basketball. Not climbing a rock and jumping into a flowing river, cold water. But I got to do this because they're all watching. So I'm like, oh, I'm almost 40, I'm climbing this rock wall, right? I'm up there about 30 feet high, and it's, I wasn't scared, <laughs> but it's pretty high up. And all of you guys are judging me now, if you guys were up there too, you'd be kind of scared too. You'd be kind of, wow, this is pretty high up. And so once you're up there, you can't climb back down. <laughs> you you got to jump. you got to go in, right, all out. So I'm looking down, <clears throat> they're all watching me. And I jumped twice just to make sure that I did it and no one failed to watch me do it. <laughs> so that was my cultural experience. You know, if I were to write a paper, what I did this summer, that would be in that paper. I tell you that story, you know, in a way just to share with you that all of us are going to make a jump really soon. We're all. Right now as a church, right, up, up high, we're about 30 feet high, and looking down at a flowing uh, river that's cold, cold water, and we're all going to jump. We're going to take a leap of faith together. And this leap of faith is greater than um, LTF. Uh, it's greater than um, you know, sending Marcus and Amy to the Czech Republic The the jump that we're all going to do together is, by God's grace and if God wills, we're going to do our best to add elders to our church by January 2011. We're going to begin this afternoon during communion. We're going to ask God to give us grace and give us faith to make this leap and take this risk as a church to add elders to our congregation And we're going to have these these men go through a one-year trial period, one-year probationary engagement period, testing period, and then if God wills, on our anniversary of 2011, we'll ordain and install these men as elders of our church. We need to do this because every year we don't add elders. We're climbing higher up on that rock Face, you know, we're climbing higher on that cliff, and every year we wait, it gets harder and harder to jump. And uh, I think it's scary now to jump and make this decision. Now, imagine uh, 15 years from now, 20 years, nobody's gonna want to jump, right? Nobody wants anyone to jump uh, if we wait any longer. Um, you know, we can't climb back down this mountain, we have to jump. When we began. Um, Ten and a half years ago, 11 years ago, we had 45 members, and we had two elders. About five years later, we had 100 members, and uh, we had two elders. And here we are. We have over 270 of our people going to retreat, and we still have two elders. And uh, it's creating havoc on Bob's and my hair, right? (laughs) Bob's losing it, and mine's going gray. I mean, I'm going to be, like, just white next month. Um, so we want to share this joy with other men <laughs> who have a good head of hair and watch it go, go away or go gray. Uh, so we want, we want to uh, tap and draft and call a few men to uh, serve with us. So this study this morning is our first step in the process. We have studied uh, eldership before in our church. We have studied before 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 on the qualifications of an elder. Uh, the traits, the marks, the qualities that, that must be in a man for him to serve as an elder of Christ's church. List of traits given by, by God. Today we're going to study first. First Peter five, and it's a different list. It's a list of the work that the man of God must be able to do if he wants to serve as an elder, the motivations he must not have and must have to serve as an elder, and just one character quality that he must possess. It is a different list than First Timothy three and Titus one. Uh, it's more functional. Focused on what he must do. It's more spiritual, internal, concerning his motivations. And then finally, one trait concerning his character. Uh, if you'll have your Bibles, please open to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to study verses 1 through 4, but I want to read verse 5 as well. We won't have time, I don't believe, to uh, to to study it, but I would like for us to read it and have it in mind. First Peter 5, one through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, The humble. Peter had in mind current elders were serving at these churches. For our purpose this morning, we are looking at not just current elders, but future elders as well. That these men must be able to do the twofold work given to elders. They must have right motivations in being an elder, and this man must have this one. Character qualification that is fitting of an elder. Brief background on 1 uh, Peter. It was written around A.D. 64. Um, very close to the beginning of Nero's uh, persecution of the church. Uh, Peter will be martyred, crucified upside down in a, in a few short years. Uh, the persecute of the church... Uh, though it was uh, isolated in, in incidents until this time, is now widespread. The government of Rome is against this sect, this cult called Christianity, and persecution has begun. With Paul's death, many Bible students believe that the impetus of Peter writing this letter was Paul's recent martyrdom, beheaded in the city of Rome. Peter writes this letter to tell them, to warn them, to prepare them to be not to be surprised at the trial that they were experiencing, because Christ was first persecuted. He was, he went through trial. He suffered, and we likely will suffer as well. And the suffering will continue. That is the main impulse behind this letter. Paul, Peter knew that the church will be severely tested by these persecutions. And so furthermore, he knew that for the church to endure through these trials, the church needed godly, faithful, committed elders to carry them through. There is a pause. There is a transition. Chapters 1 through 4 is a lot about trials and persecutions and suffering and and just enduring and persevering in the Lord. Chapter 5, he transitions to the leaders of the church the presbyteros of the church, the elders of the church. Okay, verse 1. Consider, uh, take note of Peter's humble posture in addressing the elders of the church. So I exult, exhort the elders among you. Parakaleo, I come alongside and I, and I plead. I exhort, I beg, I entreat the elders. He could have come from a position of authority. He could have come with with strong imperatives and commands and barking out orders and telling these elders how they must uh, hold the line together uh, as they're being uh, persecuted. But Peter doesn't do that. His posture is contrite, gentle, meek, and humble. He comes alongside and he appeals to them. And the context here establishes that elders is used as an official sense, not in the age sense. He's not talking to the older men of the church. He's talking to the presbyteros, the elders, the men given by God, called by God uh, to serve and lead the church. And notice the second qualification that uh, Peter gives. The first qualification is that he's a fellow elder. He's a fellow elder. So... He's speaking as one of us. He could have come and reminded us that he is the head apostle among the 12. He is the chief spokesperson, the leader of Christ's church. But he does not identify himself in that way. He comes and says, Guys, I'm a fellow elder too. All right? uh, that's my identity. I'm a shepherd, I'm an overseer, I'm a pastor. I'm a grunt, you know, I'm in the front lines and the foxholes with you men. I'm not high and lofty in headquarters, right behind the nice desk, calling out orders. No, I'm a fellow elder with you. And then he gives a very um, important uh, identifying marker. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. So Peter was indeed a a witness of Christ's sufferings. When the Lord was arrested, Peter was there. When the Lord was was punched and slapped and spat on and mocked and scoffed. When the soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe and, and ridiculed him as the king of the Jews. And as they accused him and slandered him of all evil Peter was there, and he saw it with his own eyes, and he doesn't give this information as a way of boasting. He's not um, waving his credentials. He, I believe, he shares this information as a reminder of of his uh, humiliation, because we all know, especially by this time, right? We the, the Gospels were written. We all know what Peter was doing when Christ was. Suffering. Peter was not suffering with Christ. Peter was not this bold lion of the faith standing against the accusers and defending the Lord, coming to his aid and standing beside him. I mean, what was Peter doing? Peter was denying the Lord before a servant girl, beyond another slave girl, before a small crowd that gathered around the fire. Peter publicly disavowed any relationship with Jesus Christ. A few hours ago, he had proclaimed that he was ready to go and die for Jesus. And yet a few hours later, he is denying any sort of relationship with this man, this Nazarene, this man who claims to be the Messiah for the Jews. That is what he's calling to mind. Lest anyone read um, these qualifications and become intimidated. Lest any man is called upon by the church to serve his elders and he feels like, oh man, I can't serve. And not just as an elder, but any kind of ministry. I can't I, I can't lead. I can't teach. I can't shepherd. I can't uh, serve in this capacity. I can't do anything in the church because of, of what I have done in my life. I, I think Peter... Highlights this part of his testimony, so that it would encourage us, guys. Um, you know, you might have sinned in your life before Christ and after Christ, but you know, I, I denied the Lord when He was suffering, when He was being persecuted. I was a coward, and uh, you know, God restored me. Jesus commissioned me, and if I can be used of God. Forget apostolic ministry, but to be an elder of the church, then anyone by God's grace can serve in any capacity that God has assigned to him or to her in different roles. So he goes to verse 2 and he gives the first of the twofold work of every elder in the local church. Every elder in the local church generally has uh, two assignments, uh, two responsibilities in terms of his workload. And this is the first imperative, first, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God. Now, Peter didn't originate this uh, command, poimate, right? tend, shepherd, care. Feed God's church. Where did Peter get this from? He got it from John 21. He got it from his restoration after he denied the Lord. Remember Sea of Galilee? He thought he was going to receive a huge rebuke from Jesus and he dared not approach the Lord. Jesus comes to him and Jesus asks him three questions do you love me more than these? And he's referring to, do you love me more than these men love me? And that's the question because the last time they talked, that's exactly what Peter said. Peter said, Jesus, I love you more than all these men. These men, their love for you is weak, it's furious, it's circumstantial, situational. You can't count on these men. They're not loyal, faithful, committed men ready to suffer for you. But I am different. I am willing not only to suffer for you, but to die for you. And that is the depth and extent of my love for you. That's the last discussion. And she said, no. Peter, you'll deny me three times. And what did Peter respond? You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You don't know anything. So After the three denials, Christ asks him, let me ask you a question. Do you really love me more than these men love me? Is, is that what happened? And it's calling to mind what Peter had done. You agape me. That's the word Christ used. Unconditional, sacrificial, wholehearted love. And Peter's response was honest. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. I, I was wrong to say, to say you don't know my heart. You know everything. You know I fail you. Peter, Jesus asked Do you agape me? Oh, you know, Lord, you know I philale you. Third time, Jesus condescended. That's right, Peter. Right. The best love a sinful man can muster up for the Lord is deep affection. Right. Agape love is what God gives to us and what God produces in us. And agape love we have for God is produced by Christ, not in our, not in our own strength. Do you philale me? And Peter said, Yes, I philale you. Each time, what did Jesus say? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Same word, poimate. Peter received that commission and he accepted it because he knew it was by grace. And he gave his life. He spent his life caring for God's church, for God's people, feeding them, tending them, serving them, laboring over them. And now, at the end of his life, with just a few years left, he passes the baton to these elders, to Bob and I, and to all the future elders of our dear body here at Cornerstone. Shepherd the flock of God. An elder must be able to do this and must be committed to doing this. The elder must be able to shepherd God's people. He must be able to care for the church by feeding them the Word of God. He must be a man of God's Word. A man bathed in the Scriptures, whose mind is filled with the mind of God, whose heart is passionate and burns with the truth of the Scriptures. God is not looking for what the world looks for in their organizations. God is not looking for certain personality types, people who have certain special gifts and talents, education or success in the world or in the business world. What God desires for His church and what God's church needs desperately, our elders will do the spiritual work of caring for souls with the Word of Christ which is the gospel. A sh- shepherd the flock of God essentially means feed them with the word of God. Don't feed them with junk food. Don't feed them with worldly philosophies. Don't feed them with pragmatism or social sciences or experiences. These have no value of building up of Christ's church. What God's people need is the word and it's the elder's job, the pastor's job, the leader's job, to feed them faithfully, diligently, in season and out of season, the Word of God. This is the chief work of the elder pastor teaching the Word. They are to do this, not just in the public, it's just one, one way they are to to always be exhorting, encouraging, admonishing, correcting, rebuking, teaching, shepherding, preaching in every capacity the Church of Jesus Christ. Someone said the biblical remedy, I believe it was Piper, the biblical remedy for a lost world and also for struggling believers is the comprehensive, heart-searching, heart-pursuing teachings and preachings of the truth of the Bible in the context of a local church. This man must be like uh, Ezra 7:10. Ezra 7:10. He began teaching, but he began preparing for teaching years before he actually taught. He didn't wake up one day filled with the scriptures. I was zapped with the word of God. And I tried that method, that approach. It doesn't work. I try to pray it down. It doesn't happen. Ezra. Diligently studied the scriptures. He studied the scriptures, 710. He obeyed the scriptures. He walked in them. And then he taught the Word of God. Teaching of the Word of God is a culmination of years of private, intense study, meditation, and application of God's Word into the person's heart and all the extremities of a person's life. That is what elders are called to do. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The Lord gave this commission to Peter and now to all the elders of his church. That's an important cross-reference that I would like for you to read for yourselves. If you would Let's put a finger on 1 Peter 5 and turn a few pages backwards to the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28. And here is uh, Paul's exhortation, Paul's plea to the elders at Ephesus. Acts twenty twenty-eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's speaking to elders. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. And then to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It was not your aspiration or it's not your work. It's not your achievement. It is the Holy Spirit's work. God did this. Made you overseers for this purpose to care for the church of God, ESV. NASV says to shepherd the church of God. King James to feed the church of God. They're synonymous. We use interchangeably. God made you overseers not to sit behind the te- desk and push paper. He's not called you to be an administrator. He's not called you there just to bark out orders or minister from a distance. God made you overseers so that you might shepherd, you might care, you might feed God's church and consider the price that was paid uh, for this group of people, which He obtained with His own blood. Christ didn't donate just a, maybe a pint or a portion of His blood to purchase His church, to purchase a people set apart for Himself. The Lord gave it all. He, He shed His blood. He gave His life. And the people that He ransomed, He redeemed by His death, He entrusts to elders. And their job, given to them by the Holy Spirit, first job is to shepherd them, is to care for them, and to feed them. The primary way of caring for them is feeding them the Word. God so that's the first aspect of the elders work second is exercising oversight go back to first Peter 5 please shepherd the flock of God that is among you and second is exercising oversight the Greek word is a episkopos or you get the Episcopalian church These terms, pastor, elder, um, overseer, they're all interchangeable. They're synonymous. They're different functional titles or identifying titles of the same office. The term means overseer, watcher, protector. Philo defined this term as the one who knows souls. Josephus considered it a guardian for life and conduct. Our Lord has spoken with this title, identified with this title in 1 Peter 2.25. You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls, an overseer of your souls. This is speaking of leadership. The elder's responsibility is to give general oversight of the church of God. He is to rule over the church. It's a big picture, macro uh, leading of the church. He knows the condition of the church. He he fights and leads to protect the church, to provide for the church, provide guidance, and cast vision for the future. That is uh, the second aspect of an elder's job in the local church. One more verse I'd like you to turn to is Hebrews 13:17, And here we see a reiteration of the elders' job in the local church. It is a call to the church, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they are keeping watch over your souls. They're providing oversight. They're watching over you. They are not to be tyrants. They're not dictators. They do not rule for themselves but for God. And what is their accountability? It is plurality. They give each other accountability. But more than that, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, they will give an account to God Himself. They will give a personal account of their ministry, of their oversight uh, to God Himself. It is a sobering responsibility to be a leader in Christ's church. Therefore, uh, I would love it if you were to highlight uh, the next sentence. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that will be of no advantage to you. Our job is hard enough. Our job is overwhelming. It is, uh, it is difficult to say the least. So make it our joy. Paul said in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's the heart of an elder. Third John 1, 9, John said, I have no greater joy in my life. Know that? My children are walking in the Lord. The greatest joy of a pastor is when Christians are walking with the the Lord, are filled with the Holy Spirit. Knowing that, we're spending our lives for the church. Our lives, we're not spending it for any other ambition in life. We're spending it for Christ's church. And our highest joy is when you are doing well in Christ. The church's response should be one of submission one of trust, and one of trying their best to make it easy for the leaders and elders of the church. Please highlight that verse. Um, So this is, uh, so elders must be men of the word, but they must not be just like scholars, academics, these ivory tower guys who love books and don't like people, right? who love to be alone. They must be men love the Bible, but they they know people and they know the world right they have Bible smarts but they have street smarts they have i q and eq right they have they're relationally able because their responsibility is not just brokers of god's word but they're caring for souls they have to give oversight they have to know how to listen, study, understand, process information, right, and make decisions, and have the strength, the moral courage to make that decision with humility and integrity, and stand by that decision, and admit it when it's wrong, ask for forgiveness, and make another decision, and continue forth. That's the two sides. Of the ministry of the elders, I believe that's why First Timothy three and Titus one they're more maturity traits, um, character traits. I think First Peter five complements that list by giving us functional qualifications for elders of the church. So suffice to say, shepherding and leading a church is not simple. Standards are very high. Requirements are extremely difficult to satisfy. Spiritual shepherding demands a godly, gifted, multi skilled man of integrity who is standing on grace. It is um, a heavy responsibility. Times, Bob and I, we are overwhelmed by this responsibility but we do it with joy. This is what Bob and I are praying for. This is what we ask you to pray for. Encouraged by Peter's example, his restoration, that his threefold denial of Christ didn't disqualify him, but he was able to do this, teach teach and give oversight, pray that God would, the Holy Spirit would appoint overseers in our church. who who are able to do this work. Secondly, the elder must disavow wrong motivations for eldership and be motivated, have right motivations in being an elder. We've been uh, learning for uh, many months now how motivation is determinative. I think a lot of people can do this work of shepherding, of teaching and of providing oversight. Uh, but you can do that on your own flesh. You can do that out of uh, pride or self-righteousness or out of out of all sorts of motivations. Uh, but the right motivation can only be given by God, can only be provided by the cross. I think uh, this is important because... Um, Leadership in the church uh, pulls um, godly people, and as Pastor Montoya said years ago to me, it pulls weirdos, right? So said, James, are a lot of weird weirdos. I don't know, he's a kind of older guy, you know, weirdos. But I would say weird, but a lot of weirdos in the ministry. And uh, if, you've been, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've met, Plenty of pastors where you you say oh, he shouldn't be a pastor. All right, let's raise hands now. All <laughs> right, <laughs> been around long enough. You met elders where how did how how did they, he become an elder? What is or what was the church thinking? Um, you know this. You know old adage is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Also, uh, power draws corrupt people. Authority, leadership draws humble, godly, faithful people, but also draws those who are corrupt in heart. Uh, this happens um, in many places, but we see this like in the church and in politics. Uh, you go to D.C. and it's you know it's, you know New York's about money, LA's about entertainment. D.C. is about power. And all sorts of people are there with all different agendas. I'm There are a lot of good, or some, or maybe one good politician in D.C. right now. Uh, but most of them are drawn in by that, by that power. And it, what draws them is the corruption of their hearts. It happens in the church as well. That's why so many scandals are either politicians or pastors. Right? Almost every other week or every other month you hear a reader see scandals about governors or senators, congressmen falling into gross sin or pastors, spiritual leaders falling into gross sin. Um, there's um, soul I, 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 idols of the heart, soul idolatries that are drawn, can be easily drawn to church leadership. And this is what um, Peter uh, vehemently calls the elders to warn against and teach against and to fight against in their own hearts and the future leaders. The first one uh, found in the latter part of verse 2 is shepherd and exercise not under compulsion. This is the idol of uh, fear of man. This is the insecure guy. This is the, I can't say no guy. I overcommit. I'm a nice guy. So I do just what people tell me to do. right? My life is ruled by obligations, shoulds, and oughts. My life is ruled, my heart is ruled by guilt. Right? So I do things out of duty. So um, whether paying taxes or ministering in the church, I do it out of duty. So they, they don't want to serve. Right? They don't want to be a leader. They don't want to be an elder. But they're pressed by a need. Right? They're pressed by people. They're pressed by leaders. And uh, their idol of their heart, their fear of man ensnares them. And they're serving out of pure compulsion. Right. Now, how would you feel if somebody married you that way? I'll marry you out of duty. Right? I, don't, I don't like you. Right? I don't love you, but man, I'll carry the cross, deny myself. Right? I'll suffer and marry you. Right? Well, that's their view of ministry. Right? I don't, you know, I'm not committed. My heart's not in it. I'd rather be doing a thousand different things, but out of just, out of my drudgery, I'll do it. I'll serve as an elder. Peter is saying, that motivation is dishonoring to the Lord. I imagine marrying your wife and it's starting to her, how much more are you dishonoring to the Lord, serving Christ's church with that motivation? That's the first idol. Second idol is the idol of self-pleasure. The elder is not to serve for shameful gain. NASB translates it, assorted gain. Another version, I think is the NIV is greedy for money. So that ministry in the church draws that kind of corruption, draws them, attracts them, pulls them to ministry because they'd want to do minister, they want, but with a, they have a tangent benefit, a fringe benefit that, that, that's pulling them. It's not Christ. It's not the gospel. But it's some, something they gain for themselves. Right? Um, it could be money. Right? It could be some relationship. It could be some role. It could be a, very often a title. Uh, very often uh, some standing in the church. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6 that this is the mark of a false teacher. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. They prostitute the ministry for for shameful gain. They're doing it for themselves. For what they get out of ministry. For what they get out of the church. What they'll get out of you and out of us. Not for Christ. That's an unacceptable motivation behind serving as elders. And a final one is, the idol of power and authority. Right? Not domineering. Not lording it over those entrusted to you. It's a simple word, curio, which means to control, rule, to be lord or master, but there's a prefix in the Greek, kata, to look down on. And that prefix uh, intimates a lording over, a domineering, authoritarian a dictatorial kind of person who loves to be in charge. And he wants to be an elder because he wants his voice to be heard. He wants to be in the spotlight. He wants to be up front. He wants to bark out orders. And he wants to start a ministry called the Ministry of Vice and Virtue, right? Of the local church. And legislate morality for others. He wants to replace the Holy Spirit. And he wants to use, have that authority, have that power, to uh, to be in charge. Right. These are power mongers. It's like um, Third John nine, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. He wants to be preeminent. Right. Does not acknowledge our authority this is um, this is very common among leaders in the church. They become uh, megalomaniacs they, they they almost feel like they're Jesus and they're the Holy Spirit and they don't need they need God, but they don't need Jesus and the Holy Spirit because they can they can take care of the church and they become puffed up and filled with themselves and and they love to hear themselves speak I mean, they just love it and they love to counsel people, and they love rebuking, correcting. Uh, they love to be in charge. And what's going on is their soul idolatry has attracted them towards church ministry, and they're motivated for themselves, not for the church. I showed this illustration before, but it's so helpful. Um, Tim Keller talked about a guy that he was ministering with when he was in college. This guy was a, a big man on campus. He was a jock and he was a party guy. He slept around with many girls. And he became a Christian and became part of their campus ministry. After several months, they, they noticed that this guy uh, always had to have the last word in the Bible study. He always had to be... Uh, his view had to be the right view. And he would debate and he would argue and he would press that point until people agreed with him. He would not get excited about ministries when other people were leading it. And when he was leading it, he had to make sure everybody was on board and committed to what he was doing. And they weren't sure about his salvation, but what his opinion was, was externally there might have been a change in, like, category on the campus from a jock, party animal to Christian campus ministry. But the idol of the heart remained. He slept around with those girls not for sex, but for power. It's about control for him. And he just changed teams to the Christian world, but his heart was the same. It was still about power, it was still about control. And how much more power is there than being a leader in a ministry? where you're telling other people what to do, how to think, right? what to do, what not to do. And so for him, his outward behavior changed, but you could see that by the fruits of his life, right? the auto of his heart remained. It was still pride. It was still uh, ego. It was still self. Peter uh, here points out these corruptions of the heart that, would, that might motivate a man to serve as elders in the church. And he says, we must be very uh, keen to draw these things out and to make sure these aren't aren't the things that are motivating him. He must not be a nice guy. He must not be driven by sordid, shameful gain. And he must not be about control and power and wanting to be first. Uh, Let's go to the positive side. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. He's serving as an elder, not because he mu- you must, but because you are willing. It's not by external constraint, but internal compulsion by the Holy Spirit, by God's love, as Paul says in Corinthians 5, Christ's love compels us. He is serving not because a leader asks, not because no one else is willing, not because there is such a great need, but because... That's his heart's desire. That is joy. That is his heart's delight. He wants to do it. It's not a burden. It's not a sacrifice. He's not doing anyone any favors. It is, he wants to be spent for the church. Secondly, not for shameful gain, but there is an eagerness in his heart. And I think that points to verse 4. Um, shameful gain talks about what you receive presently. Instead, this God the elder is motivated not for present gain, but for future reward. Verse 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What motivates him is not any present gain, but future. Uh, he will receive the Stephanos, the crown of glory. It's not the diadem. It's not the kingly crown given by heritage. It's given to those victors in the race, right? given for their labor and their work and their sacrifice, their, 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 their success. And God will glorify them, honor them, and by giving them a crown, and the elders in response will cast their crowns at the feet of Christ, giving Him all the glory. But present day, the elders' motivation is not what is he getting out of this? What will he get in return from the church? That's not his heart. He's looking towards the future. What God will grant to him. And thirdly, he's not motivated uh, by wanting to dominate over others, using that authority to control others. And this is the final one. The character that upholds the work he takes all that authority given to him as an elder of the church, all that uh, esteem, the honor, the respect, the power, and he doesn't become a tyrant and um, legislates it, enforces it to people. He focuses inward. Instead of domineering over, lording over people, he strives to be an example. It's easy to chide against sin. It's easy to preach and get on a soapbox and yell at people for their failings. But that's not the biblical uh, uh, mode of ministry. That's not what Christ modeled. That's not what Paul modeled. That's not what Peter is teaching here. The elders are to take all that's given to him, and he considers it as a stewardship. And he gives his life to be an example to the church. He strives to teach the church by modeling truth before their very eyes. Where he shares with them, not just the word of God, but shares with them his life. Knowing that, long term, that will make an impact. Short term, he yells at people. He tries to legislate Christian virtues there will be a behavior modification for the short run, but that sin will just go under the radar. He knows that long term, he will make a far greater impact by faithfully, patiently living out these truths before the church. And as the church sees the beauty of the cross, and as they see the beauty of the holy life in their elder, his wife and his children, and the outcome of his faith, they will be changed their hearts will change their thinking will change right head to the heart and their hands their conduct will change this is not just found here. It's found throughout the new testament philippians 3:17 brothers join in imitating me keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us 1st Thessalonians 1:5 through 7 our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How, how did it come with power? How did it come with full conviction? Did Paul just raise his voice? right? Did Paul like, scream at the top of his lungs? Or did we like... I mean, what, what, what is the full conviction? It was by his life. He demonstrated power by a transformed life in every part of his being. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. <clears throat> you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That is true conviction. How you live your life. 1 Timothy 4.12 Let no one despise you for your youth. But instead, set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. So, that is, um, I believe Bob as well, that is our approach to our ministry here at Cornerstone. Right. There are many things that thrill us about Cornerstone, but there are many things that really humble us, discourage us, that really breaks our hearts. Temptation is, man, I want to get up there, right? And, uh, you know, have that, have that talk. But our response, by God's grace, is as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord and we trust that the gospel that is preached and the gospel that is lived out will have an impact in each life and in our church all for his glory. And then ultimately, I love how Peter closes in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. We're all under shepherds, right? We are just um, intern elders, right? Here, if the church was riding on us, we have no chance, right? If we were, you know, our confidence, our hope was in us, uh, a certain failure. Certain disaster is ahead of us, but Peter reminds us that the ministry does not begin and end with us. It begins and ends with Jesus Christ. He's the chief shepherd. He reigns and he will reign victorious when he returns. So, ah, I ask you to we ask you to pray. Um, this is a. Uh, the biggest leap of faith, biggest uh, jump—you uh, know, b- much bigger than LTF, much bigger than any ministry or program or activity we're doing, much bigger than anything that we'll be we'll be doing. Uh, adding on of one or more elders, at least one, even if it kills Bob and I, we're going to do this because I, 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 you know. Every year we wait, it's a longer jump, harder harder hit. So at least one. So pray for us. Pray with us and pray for one another uh, that God might call such men uh, to serve our church. Let's pray. Father, you have been uh, so good and faithful to us, to each of us, even uh, speaking to Charlotte earlier about Jerry and her son Nathaniel and how granted him a new heart and went to church to hear your word and hear the gospel. We see your faithfulness abounding to us, to each family. And we see and know your faithfulness to our church. And yet our we struggle so much with unbelief. We so much we struggle so much with pride and self reliance. Lord, in this area we are utterly helpless. We come to the end of ourselves. Uh it is up to you, up to the Holy Spirit. There is no possible way. We can do anything to procure such men for our beloved church here at Cornerstone. So, Lord, we uh, step away and we, we commit this decision and process to you, and may your will be done. And the men that you have selected, you have set apart, may they serve as elders here. And uh, we just want to uh, ask you to help us to be humble, uh, help us to be dependent upon you and trust in you. We pray that this would be uh, a source of great joy, a source of um, unity for our, for, our, for our body. We thank you for our dear fellow Elder Peter, his life, his heart, his ministry, his words to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit as using him as an instrument of agency to inspire these words to us. And may they be upon our hearts and may we faithfully follow. We long for that day when we will see the Chief Shepherd with our own eyes and worship you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.